Rosebud. Oh, sorry, we just dropped our snow globe. <laughs> Welcome to So It's a Show! Woo! It's a podcast where we attempt to keep up with, not Lori, but Rory and Lorelai's pop yeah. culture references on Gilmore Girls. I'm Taylor. And I'm Kyla. And welcome to episode Sweet 16 for us. Sweet 16! Woohoo! We're throwing a big birthday party. Are we bringing elephants and having a huge expensive party? Yes, I want statues all around me. Some unboxed, some still in their cases. And then maybe we can go sledding. That would be lovely. And we can... I don't know. Open our own opera? Open our own opera. We can write some tabloids about our own party. Ooh, I like the idea of it. Me too. I wonder if this this party sounds like it has a theme of something. I'm just not sure what. <clears throat> Probably something a bunch of teenagers did on my Super Sweet 16 on MTV a few years back. Probably. Great show. Never seen it. Same. <laughs> <laughs> We're allowed to reference something we've never seen. I, I well, mm, that's the question. Have Rory and Lorelai seen every single thing they reference? Who's I to say? I like to think yes. Mm. Mm. Well, debatable, questionable, debatable. But I'd like to think so too. But today, our super sweet sixteen party is hold up, Citizen Kane themed. I'll bet nobody's ever done this for their Sweet 16 party. <laughs> you don't think that's every teenager's dream? No. Uh, at least it wasn't mine. I had a birthday party themed to the year I was born for my Sweet 16. How how very Taylor Swizzle of you. Before her time. Mm. Well, no, she was out then. But she didn't sing 22. Wait. No. But I Wait, didn't. What did she... Oh, she didn't release her album 1989. That's what I meant. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, I was very confused. <laughs> yes, no, I did a party in the theme of the year I was born with lots of trivia and fashion. That sounds very Taylor Blake of you. Oh, yeah, Taylor Swift and Taylor Blake. I just got that. Thanks. We share a name. <laughs> Good for you. My 18th birthday. Went to Hacienda. You mean your 16th birthday? My 16th birthday. Oh, yeah. My 16th birthday was not Hacienda. That was my 18th birthday. My 16th birthday <laughs> was, I think we did a mall um, scavenger hunt. Nice. Or, I definitely did that for like 14th birthday or something. That might have been my 15th. But I one thing I do know about my 16th birthday party is that I had a ton of friends who came over. It was like my biggest birthday bash, and I got tons of presents. I can even remember some of those presents. I got a coloring book before it was cool for adults, <laughs> and okay. shoes, and other stuff. I wore a tiara from Claire's. Well, where else would you get a tiara? Exactly. Icing? <laughs> no. I seen by Claire's? <laughs> no. Why would they make a competing store? I don't know. Like, what was the different demographic they were going for? Honestly, I think it was, like, slightly skewed older, but who's to say? They sold basically the same stuff. Although, in the mall near me, which is also the mall where I had the scavenger hunt, 
Uh, <laughs> there's an icing there, and they have a pretty risque display in there that you can... It's like a cutout of a scantily clad woman, and you can put your head on it and take a picture. And I've seen no one take a photo in it, so <laughs> I hope it's skewed older. That's it's weird. risque. It is weird. We have gotten on quite a tangent that has nothing to do with know. Citizen Kane. No. Interesting well, how that happened. Let's bring happened. it back. Let's bring Reel it back. Reel it in, guys. <laughs> Citizen Kane, Gilmore Girls. Well, we have a new segment. We do. I know. And I feel like we should have new segment music, but maybe we should just do the new segment instead of beating around the bush. Ba, ba, da, ba, new segment time. <laughs> wow. So it's a segment. Bow. Ooh. Alrighty, in this segment we call... The best, you know? The worst. <laughs> so, in this segment, we're going to ha- find a way to tie the topic in Gilmore Girls together further. And we're going to share our favorite and least favorite something from Gilmore Girls that ties into the episode we just watched. And for the listener at home, Kyla has a... <laughs> hand-carved pipe like smoking (laughs) pipe that looks like a what now a man with a beard and a top hat and a top hat that she keeps putting in and out of her mouth and making faces at me with Hmm. (laughs) i can taste the old tobacco (laughs) and it's very distracting it will be relevant later oh i can't wait to hear about this (laughs) So, for our on-topic segment (laughs) of, you're the best, you're the worst, we're talking our favorite and least favorite Gilmore Girls fights. Favorite Gilmore Girls fight. Go, Kyla. The absolute best fight in all of Gilmore Girls. I don't know how there could be a more epic fight that anyone could love more. The fight of all fights, Friday Night Dinner, Season 6, Episode 13, I can't even... It's so Friday much. Friday night's all right for fighting? Yes. Because that's exactly the one I picked, too. Yes. And all of Gilmore <laughs> Girls Nation goes, yes. <laughs> Play it. I've never been so happy to see a salad in my entire life. Ugh, I can't believe what I'm hearing. If we'd known the extent of the issue, we might not have taken Rory in. I tried to tell you. You did not. I came here and I told you exactly what happened with Mitchum and you didn't want to hear it. I don't remember that. I don't either. The Huntsburgers told her she wasn't good enough and Mitchum told her she didn't have it. He what? Yes, and now she's dropped out of Yale, but between the three of us, we can knock some sense into her. Of course we'll help you. This is not happening. I'll call Charlie Davenport tomorrow. Thank you guys so much. Just <laughs> thank you. And scene. This is a really good sorbet. I know, isn't it? Teresa made it herself. Hmm. Mango? Passion fruit. Delicious. It certainly is. Mm. What are you thinking? Buying an airplane. I didn't buy it. I looked at it. Well, what were you doing looking at a plane? I can look at a plane if I want to look at a plane. (laughs) (laughs) So I lead her over to the good table, smiling like 
like we are the best friends in the world. And I tell her, Shira, you don't think Rory is good enough to be in your family? She is. We are just as good as you are. After all, you are nothing but a two-bit gold digger. And how you managed to bag Mitchum, I will never know. <laughs> you did not. Oh, she, oh, yes, she did. I told her Mitchum still plays around. <gasps> oh, no, 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 no. Tell her exactly what you said. What did I say? About her weight going... Oh, yes, yes, I got it. I told her, Mitchum still plays around, you know. Well, of course, you know, that's why your weight goes up and down 30 pounds every three months. Oh, oh, Ruthless woman. I bowed to the foot of the master. I only wished I'd remember to call her a cocktail waitress. Ooh, ooh, that's my mother's version of the C word. <laughs> I don't want to quit the DAR. Well, too late. I was accepted and certified, Grandma. You can't just kick me out. I can, too. So I'm in contact with more members than you are. That is not true. And I like more of the members than you do. That is not true. I talk to Tweeny Halpern all the time. What are you doing talking to Tweeny Halpern? I'm friends with Tweeny Halpern. I'm helping her daughter look at colleges. I'm going to give her a tour of Yale. You have no right to talk to Tweeny Halpern or anyone else in the DAR. That is my organization. I'm not quitting. Oh, yes, you are. So, how's Luke? He is a kid. We were 16. We didn't want to get married. When you get pregnant, you get married. A child needs a mother and a father. Oh, my God. Well, I think we've officially reinstated Friday night dinner. Yes, it is so cathartic. It is, it, it, it's as if, it's just, they had to work through so much at that time in the show, and Amy Sherman-Palladino was like, hey, guys, let's just have them hash it out, move <laughs> on, kind of, do it in this way, so hilarious, the camera angles, the funniest part of that are the people who aren't fighting, and who <laughs> are waiting for the other people to finish their argument, that yeah. is what I love. I think when Rory and Emily are having it out and Richard and Lorelai are sitting down, he just says, so how's Luke? <laughs> and she's like, he has a kid. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yes. And I, of course, love that Emily again brought up Lorelai's pregnancy. <laughs> yes. It's only been, what, 18? No. It's been over 20 years by that yes. point. Yes. That is the best fight. Is that also your favorite fight? That was exactly the one I picked. I don't yeah. know how else you could pick anything else. No, no. Unless there's some obscure, like, smaller, this had meaning to me because. Mm. But pure entertainment, that one. Yes. And your least favorite. Okay, you go first since I totally took yours. Your least favorite. <laughs> go. Anytime, I guess either of the times Luke or Lorelai broke up, but especially the time when she says she's done waiting for him. In the season six finale. Mm. That hurts. Outside it's of painful. Luke's diner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's that just hurts. sad because it shouldn't happen. No. How about you? My least favorite fight, it's in season two when Christopher's with Sherry. So Chris, before you go, um, I have something I want to say to you. Uh oh. It's not an uh oh. Okay. What? Well, I um I kind of realized something with you and Sherry visiting, and God help me because of something my mother said to me. Wow, inspiration can come from the unlikeliest sources. I was just thinking, you know, all these years, no matter what my relationship status has been, whether I've been dating or hibernating or whatever, I 
think I've always had you in the back of my mind, you know, the prospect of us being together. But this prospect was sort of indefinitely on hold while you, you know, found yourself and uh, got your personal life together so that you could really be there for me and especially for Rory. But you and I have been so linked in my mind that I think I have unconsciously sabotaged every decent relationship I've had, including the one with Max, because I was waiting for you. And I shouldn't have been. And now that I see that and I see you settling down with Sherry, I think I can move beyond it. Good. I'm really glad it's good for you, Lorelai. It is. <laughs> Chris? How dare you put that on me? I'm just thanking you. Well, don't. What's wrong? What's wrong? Damn it, Lorelai, you're dumping 15 years of unhappiness on me? 15 years of not having healthy, lasting relationships on me? You're blaming me for breaking up with Max and not marrying him? That's all my fault? No, I just... I did nothing to deserve that. I'm not saying that you did. You're as good as saying it. No, I'm not. Then what did you expect to come from this divine revelation that you've been so kind to share with me? Did you want me to apologize to you for ruining your life or comfort you and say, there, there, everything's going to be all right so you can feel okay? Forget it. Chris, wait. Look, if there's anything else you feel bad about in your life that you want to dump on my doorstep, just leave a note. And it was just, it was because I cringed at how naive she sounded at not knowing what she was really saying to Christopher and how that would hurt him mm -hmm. and how it just went. It was an interaction that was meant to be so positive for her and it just completely derailed. And I just, I hate that. I hate that moment between them. Yeah. And it's not because... There were times when I did think that Lorelai and Christopher would be get, would be good together. Mm -hmm. But it's not so much because I wanted them to be together, but just because I hated how wrong that moment went. Yeah. And they do have good chemistry, and the two of them, they have so much shared history. And mm -hmm. I, even though I don't like Christopher and Lorelai together, I never doubt that they care about each other. Yeah, yeah. Same here. Well, and the reason today are you're the best, you're the worst, is about fights. Because in this episode of Gilmore Girls that we're talking about today, Gilmore Girls episode 15, Christopher Returns, dun, dun, there dun. is a huge fight that I think... Huge! Yeah, not in the running... Uh, well, it definitely doesn't beat Friday Night's Alright for Fighting, but it <laughs> probably is in the top ten arguments in the Gilmore Mansion, I would say. So, here's the IMDb episode summary. Christopher visits Stars Hollow for the first time, and Rory shows him off and shows him the town. Dinner with the parents, side note, that's his parents and Lorelai's parents, Ooh. ends up with both Rory's grandparents, which I forget Christopher's parents are her grandparents, but oh, they yeah. end up with both sets of Rory's grandparents fighting. After talking up his business venture, Lorelai gets Christopher to admit he's failing, and has him proposing before leaving town. Ugh. Weird. Not good idea. No. And then when they, both sets of grandparents, are having dinner, supposedly supposed to be a nice dinner at the Gilmore house, they get in this huge fight talking about how Lorelai ruined Christopher's life, and then when they get back to Lorelai's house, Lorelai and Rory have this conversation. 
you know, all those crazy people saying horrible things were directing them at me, not you. They were directing them to you because you had me. No, they were directing them at me because I screwed up their big Citizen Kane plans, that's all. And another sad moment from the episode is that because of the huge fight and her sleeping with Christopher, which, by the way, I don't know, like, what everyone else was doing while they were out on the balcony. How could you not notice that these two people are gone? Like, it had to have been. I don't know. Maybe it was only, like, 15 minutes. I don't know what how they did things, but... It just seems like very odd timing, and no wonder you and Rory didn't talk until you got home. Yeah. But anyways, but it leads to her not painting uh, with Luke at his diner, not repainting it. Oh, yeah. So, that was sad. Mm-hmm. Friend she date on awry. Mm-hmm. On accident. Yeah. So, Kyla, when you first heard Lorelai say that Christopher's parents were mad that she screwed up his Citizen Kane plans for him. What did you think? Uh, I had never seen Citizen Kane. So, I did not know. (laughs) I always, I knew the movie was like this epic film and it was on, no, it actually wasn't on my to-see list, honestly. Um, (laughs) And I knew it was about a guy... Who said Rosebud. Mm. And didn't know what Rosebud meant. So I had no idea. Mm. So I just, I guess I assumed, I, I just kind of thought Citizen Kane, a movie with grand plans. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't know. What about you? Well, when I first watched Gilmore Girls, I had already seen Citizen Kane. And for the podcast, I rewatched it. It was my third time watching it. Hmm. So I had seen it and I knew about Citizen Kane, but I will say this is a very, it's not the most intuitive Citizen Kane reference. So even watching it for the third time, I was trying to figure out exactly what Lorelai was getting at because it's not the most, it's not the kind of thing that I think of when I think of Citizen Kane. Or at least not the first thing. Right. Okay, so it wasn't totally clear to you even though you had watched it? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. But the movie, I actually thought it was a newer film. I thought that it starred Clint Eastwood. Oh. For some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Very different. that it was like a mystery about how he died. That was what I thought it was about. (laughs) Where I got that, I have no idea. I must have seen some image for a movie he was in and thought it was Citizen Kane, and it was not. (laughs) No, I understand because, okay, so example, I had only heard bits and pieces of Hamilton, and when I first listened to the Skylar Sisters song, in out of context, in somebody's car driving somewhere, <laughs> I assumed one of the main conflicts of the play was going to be that Peggy felt left out compared to her sisters Angelica and Eliza, huh. and that there was a rivalry between those three sisters. But then when I listened to the whole context of the play, I was like, "Well, that's what I just got from a snippet, and yeah. there is that is not really a conflict in this play at all." Mm-mm. So maybe you just heard a bit in piece because you're like not totally off, 
Yeah. <laughs> there is a mystery around someone's death. But not Clint Eastwood's. No. <laughs> not Clint Eastwood. So I was very confused when I Googled it for the first time, like the other day. And <laughs> it was black and white. I was like, what is this Clint Eastwood nonsense? No Clint Eastwood. So I've been enlightened. Let me tell you. Well, I'm glad we could be part of your film education. <laughs> That's what this podcast is all about. I mean, Woo! really. Mine and everyone can learn with us. Yes. And just for reference, the real plot of Citizen Kane is that a man named Charles Foster Kane. I'm Charles Foster Kane, dang it. <laughs> yeah. He dies and his final word is Rosebud. Rosebud. Yes. And then the person, oh gosh, what is his name? Mr. Townsend. Then when people are reporting on his death, this guy, Charles Foster Kane, was a huge newspaper man. They want to get the real story behind his life. So they hire Give this guy. Give me the guy facts. Ma- yeah. He's Mr. Townsend. He's looking for a hot scoop. <laughs> and he goes and talks to all of these people, including Kane's ex-wife. And his former business partner and a bunch of people who knew him to try and figure out what Rosebud meant. Yeah. And that's and basically the plot. A lot of flashbacks. Yeah, basically it's all flashbacks except for the beginning and then in between when he go- he's going to his different sources. And they all have a different side of the story. And... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I definitely, like, as I was watching it, I was waiting... To figure out what it was going to be about. Because it starts, Xanadu, Xanadu, we're in Xanadu. And I was like, what the heck is Xanadu? <laughs> I thought it was going to be all about his private island, Xanadu. But is it a private island? No, I think it's just a huge estate. Yeah. Looked like an island. Took up enough space. And I was just waiting for it to, to kind of start. And then um, I... Like, I was like, okay, the first flashback, okay, that's who this guy was. But then, as the flashback continued, I was like, okay, this, I think, is the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like this film? Hmm. I did like this film. It was nice the day after I watched it, letting it set in more. And kind of thinking about it. Uh, You know, I, I guess I didn't even think about my expectations going into it. I try to go into movies with no expectations. I don't like to know a lot of stuff about movies before I see them because I don't, I don't want people to tell me if they like them because I want to figure it out on my own and not, um, not get easily disappointed because I tend to raise expectations on things. So... You know, I, but I knew that Citizen Kane was, you know, referenced all over the place and one of the greatest American films. So I didn't, I didn't think, even think about how my expectations are going to be so high going into it until I started watching and was like waiting for it to really start and then realizing you're just watching the movie. So just watch the movie. But I liked it. It was different. It's, it was probably more impactful in 1941. But even I can still see the the timeless message of it. And I liked the characters. Yeah, I mean, there's so much I could say about it. Yeah. But the first time I saw it, I think I thought, there's no way this can live up to the hype. And then I saw mm-hmm. it, and I thought, 
oh, actually, this is really good. And I will say my third time watching it, once you know, like, you know the answer to the mystery. So there's not as much intrigue. And so I wouldn't say it grabbed me quite as much as it did the first two times I watched it. But it was still, I mean, impressive storytelling and filmmaking. Right. Yeah. And even the mystery at the end, I didn't, I wasn't totally sure of. I had to look it up. And there were different takes on it of what Rosebud was. Yeah. We'll have to get into that because Mm -hmm. I found an interesting perspective to add to the conversation. Good. Did it come from Turner Classic Movies? No, I actually didn't look up Turner Classic Uh, Movies this time. And this really, in retrospect, that would have been a great place to start. But I didn't. (laughs) Actually, the very first thing that I pulled out to do my research for this episode. Oh, no. Thank you, college. I pulled out. Listen to this. Listen to all those pages. This is a short history of the movies, 11th edition, (laughs) which I used for my history of criticism and film class in college, which is maybe my most favorite class from college. It was an excellent one. Yes. Who taught that? John. Hmm. It was very good. Hey, John Bruner. Shout out. Heyo. That was a great class. Maybe my favorite class that I took in all of college. And it was excellent. And so I refreshed myself on what I learned about that movie because we watched that movie for that class. Hmm. And this textbook gets rolled down into the nitty gritty of why particular <laughs> camera angles are significant. I will not be sharing all of those today. Thank I you. I just want you to know. Yes, <laughs> I know. It's a textbook, not exactly uh, the most riveting piece of literature. But yes, it did remind me of all the great reasons why this film is great. <laughs> so as we've said, Citizen Kane, big deal, big deal film. AFI, you know, the American Film Institute, they do their list of 100 greatest movies, and the last time they updated it was 2007, and this movie was their number one movie of all time. Wow. Yes. And then, in a more recent poll from The Hollywood Reporter, they polled over 2,000 industry members, including executives, producers, actors, directors, all sorts of people. This was in 2014, and Citizen Kane was number three, which I think is still pretty impressive. Number three out of 100. That was after The Godfather and The Wizard of Oz, which was a little bit of a surprise to me that it would beat out Citizen Kane. Still a big deal. And Citizen Kane, it was a big deal when it came out, but not like it is today. Actually, at the time it came out, it was not 100% well-received because it was so different from the movies that were coming out at the time. So, my textbook, don't worry, I won't read you every little <laughs> detail. But they were talking about how it was shocking and confusing to most people because people were so used to the happy, glossy Hollywood ending. And they were... Not used to these actors putting on tons of makeup to show different ages. There was no romantic resolution. There were no last-minute changes of heart. I mean, so it had a sad ending. And then also, it was controversial because a lot of people say this film is inspired by William Randolph Hearst. Oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, and so William Randolph Hearst did not care for this portrayal of him 
And so any press that he owned wouldn't advertise the film. And he would pressure theaters not to show it or advertise it. And this was basically the only movie that director Orson Welles, who also played Kane, this is like basically the only movie he ever got to do where he had full artistic control because Mm -hmm. audiences didn't get it. And because the Hearst press companies were just drowning opportunities to advertise it and it didn't do so hot at the box office and from then on studios were basically chopping up his films to try and make stuff they thought would sell right but today it's considered a masterpiece and like i said many people consider it to be the greatest film of all time right and i mean during its production well, there was lots of opposition trying to end the filming i watched some interviews with Orson Welles, and it was so interesting to see him change over the years. Mm-hmm. So I watched like an interview from 1960, then one from the 70s, then one from 85, supposedly eight days before he died. This interview was filmed. I'm not 100% sure on that because it's, you know, a video posted. Mm-hmm. And I, anyway, 1985, which he did die in 1985. So interesting to hear him loosen up about some of these. But even in the 1960 interview, he shared that there was an effort to end filming from within his staff. And he said that someone tried to frame him on criminal charges. Whoa. And he didn't get into that. But then in the 1970 interview, and it was around 1970s, it didn't say, I just um, judging from his look in it and other things that, um, other images of him from the seventies, he explained the setup, which was just crazy. And he called it, um, mobbish or a gangster like, and here's him explaining it. Cop turned out to be very nice. He said, don't go back to your hotel room. I said, why? He said, they've got an underage girl undressed and photographers waiting for you set up so I didn't go back to my room that night I just stayed up took the plane in the morning but that was that was as far as they were prepared to go I would have gone to jail of course and they had the producers in Hollywood ready all together to pay RKO to burn the negative it was nip and tuck you know whether the negative would be burnt the picture never shown whoa yeah. So crazy. And just for the record, Orson Welles was 25 at the time. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. 25. Yeah. And he said in the 1960 interview that he wanted authority, not money. So he was able to get this contract where he was the producer, director. I don't know, my pipe, one of his eyes fell out. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Poor guy. I will glue it back in. Um, anyways, maybe that's a sign. He's crying uh, for poor Orson Welles. Um, so he was able, he had a limited budget, but he had full authority. You know the roughs that they have at the end of each day where they kind of mm-hmm, put together. Here's what we shot today. Some of the images we got. Look, we're doing work. We promise. Um, that no one got to see those but him. And wow. that... No one even saw it, he said, until it was ready to be released. That was the level of authority he had, which is so strange because back in the day, studios were everything. Yeah. Well, and like I said, this is the one and only movie he got to make like he wanted to. Yeah. 
But also, I another thing Hearst did, he accused Orson Welles of being a communist, which in 1941, which was <laughs> when it was released, that was a huge deal. It's pretty popular to accuse people of communism. <laughs> yes, but I think Hearst at least had a reason to be concerned because also the guy mm. who wrote it, oh gosh, what's his, Mankiewicz, mm-hmm. who wrote it, I don't know his first name. But the writer, Mr. Mankiewicz, he created a lot of the dialogue, it says, using almost verbatim lines from William Randolph Hearst's writings and speeches. Oh. And Xanadu, the house in the movie, was inspired by Hearst's castle, which was in California. Hmm. Well, and in the 1985 interview, uh, the guy interviewing him said, so you're a lot, you talk a lot more freely about the inspiration from Hearst now, don't you? (laughs) So he was kind of owning up to it by then. Yes. But what's funny, okay, so this is more recent, Mm. just a few months ago, just a few months ago, guess who gave a talk about how much he loved Citizen Kane. Uh, I don't know. William Randolph Hearst the Third. That's oh. his grandson, and apparently he loves this movie. Awesome. And he had all sorts of things to say. So they actually showed this movie in the last few years at Hearst Castle. You could. Huh. This was a huge. It was like a charity event. You could pay a whole bunch for a ticket and see it there. Or That's at least maybe funny. actually I don't know if it was a charity thing, but it cost a thousand dollars to go see it there. Might just be a really expensive movie night. Yes, for sure. For sure. So it's definitely interesting to me that this was not well received at the time, but today it's just considered great. I mean at the time yeah. it got nominated for nine Academy Awards, but only won one. Hmm. And audiences didn't love it. But this review, I think, from The Hollywood Reporter, this is what came out in 1941. I think this is really telling. This is just straight up. It starts with, Citizen Kane is a great motion picture. All right, tell us how you feel. And it says it was made on an $800,000 budget, which is like $13 million today, which is still a pretty small movie budget. And he's just talking about all these incredible things that are so new. So he says he wastes no time in introducing his different technique. The film begins with a mythical two-reel news on the march, obviously based on the march of the time. And he says Wells' performance is nothing less than astonishing. (laughs) And Greg Toland, who is the cinematographer, his camera has never performed such miracles. So he was a big fan. So not everybody hated it at the time. Yeah. I wonder if it was just because... It was so different, you know, but now we can look back and appreciate it. Yeah. And I think part of it was just it was so different that people didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And if you're William Randolph Hearst, you probably didn't like it. Yeah, no. Gerald, do you know how long you kept me waiting last night while you went to the newspaper for ten minutes? What do you do in a newspaper in the middle of the night? Emily? My dear, your only correspondent is the Inquirer. 
Sometimes I think I'd prefer a rival of flesh and blood. Oh, Emily, I don't spend that much time on the newspaper. It isn't just the time. It's what you print, attacking the president. You mean Uncle John? I mean the president of the United States. He's still Uncle John. He's still a well-meaning fathead who's letting a pack of high-pressure crooks run his administration. This whole oil scandal. He happens to be the president, Charles, not you. That's a mistake that will be corrected one of these days. Did you think that... A Charles Charles Foster Kane. Maybe it was relatable to a character on Gilmore Girls. Uh, Christopher, because that's what his parents wanted for him. No, Logan's dad, newspaper tycoon. So much money, didn't know what to do with. Angry oh, at everyone. My gosh, spot on. And mm -hmm. they have that huge house. Yes. Great connection. Thank you. Yeah. And while Logan's dad, what's his terrible name? Mr. Huntsberger. Mitchum only had one wife. He had many ladies, as shown by Mrs. Huntsberger's weight fluctuating every three months. Yes. As Emily you, pointed Emily. out to her. <laughs> A good fight. Anyways, I thought that just stood out to me right away when they said newspaper tycoon and just seeing his character... Mm -hmm. as it went along having a lot of influence being really cocky having a lot of money mm -hmm. that's a good comparison one thing with filming that i i kept noticing was that they love reflections yeah like that huge mirror shot at the end after susan leaves Mm-hmm. Mm. or there was some in the water water that was around uh, maybe the snow globe was there some? Yeah, you could kind of see people in that. Right. Was that different for the time? I, I wasn't sure if that I was I would one think area. so. They were talking about how angles were so different. Mm-hmm. So I would expect that was probably new, too. Actually, one of my favorite things that I picked up this third time watching it. So the guy who basically is our point of view character who is asking all these people questions mr townsend mm -hmm. i didn't notice this before but almost every single shot of him the camera is behind him we can't see his face mm -hmm. so it's like we are him like we yeah. are the person listening so we're in his spot i thought that was really interesting interesting yeah that is so true um also the puzzles that his second wife kept on doing what were those pieces they were like, mm. they did not fit together. That would be so hard. They were I like not curvy. Pay attention that closely to the pieces. Although they definitely fit with the whole film metaphor of piecing together this man's life. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of that myself. I read that somewhere. <laughs> oh, okay. What did you think about Kane as a character? Like, just the type of person he was well i didn't think he was a great person if that's what, are you asking if i think he's a great person no no i'm talking about him as a character and his personality and mm -hmm. then that progression well i think it's interesting because as you're going through the film the flashbacks are more or less chronological 
but not a hundred percent. So you're jumping through different points in his career. And so you see him when he's more idealistic and starting out and he and his friend make their declaration of principles when they start the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And then you get to see him when he doesn't care anymore about that. But he's not really a character I identify with as I watch the film. I think partly because because we're in Mr. Townsend's spot. It's very voyeuristic. And it's almost... Like I'm, I. It's not like we're meant to identify with Kane. I think it's really mm-hmm. just an observation, and I feel like, yeah, um, this is also something people have pointed out. The opening shot in which he, the camera moves in through his fence and in and out throughout Xanadu, Xanadu, and then goes <laughs> into him saying his final word, Rosebud, and then that same style repeats. I noticed this especially when he's talking to his second wife, Susan. The camera starts in and then goes over the top of the restaurant she's singing and then down through the window. And so the camera is almost just like a surveyor. It goes in and out and weaves around almost like Mr. Townsend is just walking in and out of these buildings trying to figure out the story. So I think it's an interesting character development, and I think Orson Welles is great in the role. I think he's phenomenal. But I also don't – I mean, he's not our point of view character. Mm -hmm. So we're not even – I don't empathize with him. I can, like, feel sympathy for him when his parents abandoned him as a kid, and I can track and see him as a believable character, but he's not the person that I leave going, wow, I really get him. Right. (laughs) I really feel it, man. Right, who's just more someone to study. Interesting character yeah. to study. Like, can yeah. you imagine anyone walking away from this being like, Charles Foster Kane is my spirit animal? <laughs> no. No, I no. I just thought his personality was really fun and different for an old movie. Like, mm. he had a spark to him that I haven't seen in other movies of the time. Um, Not stereotypical 1940s man of like, well, what are you doing over there? <laughs> Come here, lady. You're mine. You know, yeah, it just, he, he felt more genuine. <laughs> and like he, <laughs> he just had a separate personality, his own self. And, and he's kind of a cult of personality too. Like the way he proceeds as a politician, I mean, mm-hmm. it's super personality driven. Right. Right, and even, well, his first wife, you didn't see that love story, but the second one, I actually really got into. I thought it was really sweet, and it seemed like there was a real care there, but he just didn't know how to -to day-to-day care for someone Mm -hmm. and to care for them correctly. Well, and another thing I picked up this time that I hadn't before there's a moment, you know, he first meets her, and it's pretty innocent. He just goes to her apartment, and they're chatting. Mm-hmm. And then, and there's really no insinuation. Like, you can tell they like each other, but there's really no implication that they're going to have a physical relationship or that he'll cheat on his first wife. Right. But the I think one of the moments you can kind of see him change is when... She says, I guess I wanted to be a singer. My mom wished I were an opera singer. And then when they get married, that's his 
that's his mission is to make her a great opera singer. And I think that's one of those subtle hints about what Rosebud is. Which, for the record, people, we're going to spoil Rosebud if you haven't seen this yeah, yet. Yeah, you probably do need to watch this movie before you listen to this because we're we just can't get into so much detail about the plot so (laughs) yes pause this watch it come back (laughs) yes so but i think that's such a good subtle hint because to him having mother's approval is everything Mm, and so for i wonder if in some weird twisted way this is his way of trying to give susan something he could never have or try and maybe he even thinks he's doing it for her benefit like oh this is what your mother wanted well then i want to give it to you right interesting because when that was first happening i thought dude that's not what your wife wants did you did you not listen to what she said (laughs) but coming from his troubled childhood Mm -hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense Mm mm-hmm Good insight, Taylor. Yeah. Thanks. I made that one up on my own. Maybe I'm not the first to say it, but I thought of it on my own. (laughs) That's what counts. (laughs) No, I wanted to be a singer, I guess. That is, I didn't. My mother did. What happened to the singing? Well, mother always thought, (laughs) she always talked about grand opera for me, Uh imagine. But my voice isn't that kind. It's just, well, you know what mothers are like. Yes, have you got a piano? A piano? So, I, like I said, I watched several interviews with Orson Welles, and he was really interesting, interesting to listen to and watch change over the years, but a few things that he said that stood out to me, well, first of all, my pipe, which, by yeah. the way, has never been smoked. My mom got this on some childhood trip. I found it, latched onto it. I actually in college, would hold this and pretend suck on it while, not like suck, like, you know, like you would if you were smoking, not like, Ugh. yeah, but <laughs> pretend inhale. Oh my gosh, guys, you can't see it, but Kyla's French kissing her pipe. <laughs> <laughs> gosh. Um, while writing articles for a college newspaper, because it just kind of like was something to take my mind, just something to distract myself with. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I then know. distract your future podcast partner yes, by making funny faces with it. Has been even more fun, let me tell you. Oh, boy. <laughs> In his interviews, he was never without a cigar. Everyone mm. smoking away on Johnny Carson. <laughs> and so this is my tribute to him. That's all. And <laughs> so he was asked in the beginning... They're like, dude, you were 25. How were you so successful? How did you make this revolutionary piece of film? What in the world? And his answer, I loved it. Ignorance. He said it wasn't confidence. It was the fact that he hadn't made movies. He just wanted to tell the story. And he thought, hey, I'll do it in film. And so he didn't know what was impossible. So he didn't know that what he was asking for was impossible. But the people he was working with were like, all right, let's do it. Whoa. And so he had no no box that he knew he needed to 
that he felt restrained to. He thought, because he didn't know film, that he could do anything, that film, that in film he could create anything that he dreamed up. Mm. So there were no limitations. So it's like, that is so interesting. So, you know, they're asking him, oh, are you sad that you peaked at 25 and <laughs> and he said no like I couldn't have done it at any other time because that was when I was naive that was when the opportunity was presented to me and so he did it and he was with the already established cameraman who was tired of working with people who already knew too much and in 1960 he said the cameraman told him he could learn everything he needed to know about film in 20 minutes in 1970 he said that it was three hours so <laughs> really sure either way uh you know he said some people thought that was kind of pompous to say but it was the cameraman who told me i can teach Mm -hmm. you everything you need to know everything else is just talent so he was it was just a really good setup for him with that cameraman um and that he was able to get just an unheard of contract where he was directing himself that was something that had only been done, you know, he mentioned a, a man's name that I, I, I'm not aware of, but um, wasn't a normal thing. So a lot of people in Hollywood did not like him. <laughs> and he said that he didn't hate Hollywood in an early interview. But guess what? In the 1985 interview, <laughs> he hated Hollywood, always has, always will. So, <laughs> you know, I think as he got older, you know, you get more sour about things or you have more time to think about them. And it's fine. Uh-huh. You can change your mind. But when you're on camera changing your mind, you know, it stands out to us more. That's kind of funny. But he just talked about his inability to compromise. And he said, things fall apart if they're not done my way. Mm. So. A little like Citizen Kane. Yes. And see, (laughs) that is exactly where I was going with that. Because someone asked him what he thought about others saying that this film was autobiographical. And he said, no. I don't see that. And he said, maybe it's ignorance, but it seemed like he said that only because he thought he was supposed to. He really didn't think that he was like Mr. Kane. He said that he was everything that he wasn't. Wow. Hmm. That's really interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. And he said, everything I'm not, good or bad. But there are some definite... Similarities. Even when he went in the movie, Kane runs a newspaper and Thatcher's like, you don't know how to run a paper. And he was like, no, I don't know how to run a newspaper. I'm just doing anything I can think of. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what Orson Welles did in yeah. creating the film. That's so interesting. So was it about Hearst or was it about Wells? Or both. Because mm-hmm. I will say this interview with William Randolph Hearst III, that this was in April. He was at the San Francisco International Film Festival, and he loved Citizen Kane. But he did talk about his memories of his grandfather, too. Mm-hmm. So he was saying this movie was never mentioned growing up. It was a forbidden subject. But there was this one time... <laughs> They were in the car, and the guy at the gate they were about to go through was like, oh, you're Bill Hurst. I love that movie about you. Oh, my. And he did not care for that comment. (laughs) (laughs) And he also, here you go, said he saw some parallels between 
Hearst and Wells, even if both men were unlikely to admit them. So mm. he thought that San Simeon, which was the real Hearst Castle, that was a stage, and both Orson and my grandfather liked to put on a good show. I think Orson would have liked being there. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And then there were other parallels, too. Like, Hearst had a very public, decade-long affair with his mistress, who was an actress, kind of like Susan, the mm-hmm. second wife in the movie. And he thinks he, he's like, my grandfather must have just really loved her. And so they had a long-standing relationship that wasn't that secret. But he did think Xanadu, 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 was not <laughs> a perfect parallel to San Simeon because it sounds like San Simeon was always having parties and it was a lot of fun. Whereas Xanadu in the movie is portrayed as really dark and austere and dreary and depressing. And he also thought that the representation of journalism was not necessarily great. <laughs> hmm. Well, He didn't think yeah. it was accurate in how newspapers are done and... Wasn't that kind of the point, though? Well, here's what he says. This is an interesting quote from William Randolph Hearst III here. He, at one point in this interview, says he didn't think it was representative of... It's not accurate in how it portrays the newspaper business. But then he goes on to say... My view is that we've left behind the kind of journalism that was considered a calling for people 20 to 30 years ago, to some degree because of Roger Ailes at Fox. He discovered it was a lot cheaper to have two generals in front of a map pushing pins around than it is to send people to cover the war in Afghanistan. So we've substituted dialogue opinion and paid experts debating each other with no facts or actual reporting, and that, I think, is a bigger challenge to journalism than left Mm. versus right. I think we're ready for the pendulum to swing back from everybody's opinions are equal to no, some people's facts are really facts. So I think he's saying what Charlie Kane was doing in the movie, you know, you give me pictures, I'll write the headlines, was, Mm -hmm. is kind of what people are doing today. Yeah. And that isn't necessarily accurate to how newspaper reporting has always been done, but it's how it's going today. Right. Hmm. Interesting. So maybe the public, maybe the public persona or the, the, the facts of Charles Kane's life matched more with Hearst, but his personhood matched with Orson. Yeah. Ooh. So, like, the actual life events track with Hearst, Hearst, but the personality is more Wells. Right. Ooh. Well, we've cracked this movie. No more discussion needs to be done. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, honestly, I didn't know... That's why I love this. I didn't know what was going to come about, but I've learned more talking to you. (laughs) I feel like we've gotten somewhere. I'm feeling pretty good. Film discussion and criticism. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Woo!
Rosebud. Rosebud. What do you think? <sighs> I I thought that the movie ended with you not finding out what Rosebud was. Because I thought that my husband had watched it and said mm-hmm. that he didn't know what it was, but he has not watched this movie. <laughs> so <laughs> you could not give me accurate information. Um, so when I saw Rosebud, which, spoiler alert, is written on a childhood sled, or is it a new sled that gets well, tossed rem- into a fire? Well, remember he mentions in one of the flashbacks that he goes to get some of his mother's things after she dies. Oh, gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So it's written on- Another thing I picked up on my third watch. Nice. Okay. That was good. But yeah, I thought we weren't gonna know what it was. That's what I was expecting the whole time. Although I hoped to find out, but I thought, Mm -hmm. no, we're not going to. And then it gets tossed in the fire- and I was just then I was just like, okay, so his childhood, like he just wanted to go back. That's what he was thinking about in the end was his childhood. And mm-hmm. when he he also said Rosebud when he picked up that snow globe in the tent, and that was also where I thought, okay, it has to do with um a childhood memory. Yeah. So, interesting that that was the word that it was. It wasn't just like, I mean, it, his whole childhood had to be represented in one word. And that word that he thought it was Rosebud. Because when he was riding that sled was when everything changed. Yeah. Kind of the inciting incident for the story, almost. Mm-hmm. Not the frame story, but the internal story. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about you? Yeah. That's pretty much what I took away from it the first time. And even, yeah, like, longing for this childhood and for, I think, also the approval of his parents. Because I like how they keep it vague of what exactly is going on with his parents. And for the life of me, I can, I tried to figure this out. My mom and I watched this together this time. It is so confusing what exactly happened with his mom. Like, she got the deed to a gold mine or something. Yeah, what I understood is that they bought a house for cheap, bought some property. It happened to have gold or oil, I forget, gold, Uh underneath it. And so she sold it. And I don't know, I do not understand why they gave their son away. It seems like they're saying, and the dad didn't want him to go away. Until but it he seems heard that like, he would get $2,000 a month. Uh, oh, I missed that. Okay, yeah, he said so, you'll get $2,000 a month, and he said, oh, he'll be fine. <laughs> Great parenting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, because it seems like they send him away, and their public reason is, well, you're going to get to go to the best schools. Mm-hmm. But maybe they just don't want to be parents? Yeah, his mom was a creeper. Yeah. That line that she delivered, that she had had his stuff packed for a week. Mm. Eerie. Yeah. I'm By the way, right here. <laughs> after the movie was over, I was like, thanks, Mom, for not being that kind of mom. <laughs> yes. Got 
William Randolph Hearst III, who's my new favorite person to quote in this podcast <laughs> interview, he says he thinks that Rosebud is actually the little snow globe, not the sled. He says, I think there's something sad in the character Kane, and to some degree in my grandfather's personality, that inside that little world is youth, it's childhood, it's home, it's safe, and they'd like to go back to that. I think that's what Rosebud is. It's really that sense of a childhood denied in some way. Mm, yeah. Which snow globe, sled, what, what does it matter? Yeah, I don't know. But I think maybe he thinks specifically it was the, I don't know, the snow globe. But the same big idea. Mm-hmm. Rosebud. Okay, so our reference from this episode, because referenced again in the show, as you found, mm-hmm. um, but ours was talking about more about the parents. So how does this fit in with, with the world of Gimmel Girls? So what Lorelai said is that Christopher's parents were mad because she screwed up their big Citizen Kane plans. Does that mean that like Citizen Kane, or Charlie Kane's parents, they basically wanted him to go away to the best schools and have a successful life, but not necessarily have any relationship Mm. with him? Because no matter what happened, Christopher does not have a great relationship with his parents as made evident by this episode that sounds right to me was there (laughs) another way that you were leaning no i think i think it's just because when i think of citizen kane i don't think of what happened to him as the plans of his parents they do mention let me see i wrote this down because I noticed this when I was watching it. That his parents had the sixth largest private fortune in the world. Or in America. Or something crazy like that in the movie. Wow. So like that's how much money is in the family. This is in Citizen Kane. Not in Gilmore Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously Christopher's parents are rich. But not that rich. So. And so when I see what happens in that movie so much of it seems like it's Kane's own doing it doesn't right. seem like it's his parents doing but i guess Lorelai is saying they sent him away so that or like that Christopher's parents tried to send him to his good school and give him lots of money so that he could be really successful mm-hmm. and powerful i guess that's it which seems like such a small part of the movie it's like mm-hmm. someone watched the first 15 minutes of the movie and then created that <laughs> reference you know yeah yeah but he does have a bad relationship with his parents and it almost seems because Christopher throughout the whole show is an unreliable person Mm -hmm. and that's also in his business whatever he's doing which is always super vague like in this episode he tries to buy rory that huge dictionary and his credit card is declined and he lies about how well work is going and Mm -hmm. then it turns out it's not going well and i almost wonder if his parents are just trying to it sounds like 
Lorelai says is saying they're projecting all of Christopher's failures on me. They keep saying, hmm. you know, they think if I hadn't gotten pregnant, then and then Christopher would be Citizen Kane by Which now. Which makes no sense because he had nothing to do with Rory's childhood. Exactly. And I think it's more a reflection of how bad parents they are. Yeah. <gasps> and follow-up, Christopher's not a reliable dad. He's not around for Rory's childhood, much like Charlie Kane's parents weren't around. The cycle continues. Yeah. Although Christopher is a better dad than Kane's parents. Yes. Low yes. bar, but he is. He raised Gigi. <laughs> yes, he does try and he does try and redeem himself. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I mean I would say that's what it means. It's Citizen Kane plans. Yeah, it's that seems to make the most sense, but there's just so much more, like, I'm trying to think, you know, what else. But, you know, it really has to do with the parents and um, that strange setup that they had. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, this is not the only time Citizen Kane is referenced in the world of Gilmore Girls. Tell me more. Let me tell you more. Tell, tell, me, tell me more, more. Tell me more like this. <laughs> they have another reference. In episode 406, when Suki first goes to Emily and Richard's house, this is what she says. Wow. You grew up here? I swear she makes me wear a uniform. This is Citizen Kane's house. Drape one of those napkins over my arm. <gasps> is there a moat? And then, if we're gonna go even deeper... Deeper, this is let's something go. in an upcoming episode, episode 117, The Breakup Part 2. Rory and Lane have this conversation about Madeline's house. Wow, this is unbelievable. My wedding won't be this big. Yeah. This is amazing. People live here? This is Madeline's house. Is this what your grandparents' house looks like? No. I mean, it's big, but it's not this first castle And then... The first time Lorelai sees the inside of Luke's apartment in episode 215, she says it looks like a white trash Hearst castle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. So, a lot of people have commentary on, I guess, Madeline and Emily's house. That makes sense to me. Luke's apartment, not as much. What did he have in there that made it seem Hearst castle-y? I mean, that it was so much clutter, it was all... I guess so. Well, and white trash Hearst Castle, which is very randomly specific. Yeah. So, like, a lower class version of Hearst Castle. Tell <laughs> <laughs> me that. Xanadu, Xanadu. So, what's your take on Xanadu, Xanadu? Xanadu, Xanadu. In the um, world of Gilmore Girls. Uh, it's a rich house, <laughs> big house, so apparently whenever a new large house is featured, except for when Rory goes into Logan's house, they compare it to Hearst or Kane. Mm. So, 
yeah, I guess they like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Suki probably knows how lonely Lorelai felt growing up in Richard and Emily's house. Mm. Much like Susan did in Xanadu, Xanadu. Get my Don All Cardo she had voice were on. puzzles. Puzzles for friends. Yeah, so does that change how you read the scene? Or did you already just kind of understand it from the beginning? Because you'd already seen the movie, so I don't know. Oh, I think I understand it better now. Because I have never thought about Citizen Kane as much in the context of Charlie Kane's parents. Compared to right. whatever fancy names Christopher's parents have. I forget <laughs> their name. I feel like it's like Straub and Francine or something. Straub and Francine. Right? That is exactly right. That is just Strobe and Francine Hayden. Like, those are just such rich people names. Ugh, they sound awful, too. <laughs> Maybe we're colored, though, by knowing how terrible these characters yeah, are. Yeah, if your name is Strobe or Francine, no hate to you. Yeah, Francine from Arthur was nice. Yeah. Yeah. And strobe, it's like a strobe light. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and those are fun! Yeah! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> We're DJing at a party near you. Get ready. Woo-woo! Party at the Hearst Mansion. Party at Xanadu! Can you say Xanadu? Xanadu, Yeah, you really have to say it twice. Xanadu, Xanadu! Okay, that is from something. Citizen Kane? No, but did that how they said it in Citizen Kane? I mean, they said it... We've said it many ways besides the way they said it in the movie. Did they say Xanadu, Xanadu? Yeah, I think it was in the opening March newsreel. Oh. Well, then, that's where I heard it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's not to say that it couldn't have been done elsewhere. Maybe it was copied, but that is probably the original. I would think so. Where did I hear that from? Oh, yes. What we're talking about. Makes sense. Does it change how you read the scene, Kyla? Well, absolutely. Because no. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, geez. You're good at this. Um, Yes, because. No, you know, cowboy guy. What's the guy's name that I thought was in the movie? Clint Eastwood. No Clint Eastwood. <laughs> so yeah. it definitely changed how I read the scene because, again, I had no idea what it meant. I just knew it was a big, epic movie. And so now I know about the parents, and that's good. And I'm getting a little loopy by the end of this. We've talked so much Citizen Kane, but... Yeah, I mean, definitely, I understand it now, whereas before mm-hmm. I did not at all. So, yeah, this has been great, and I'm glad that I finally watched the movie. Great excuse to watch Citizen Kane. One of the greatest movies of all time. So they say. Do you think it's one of the greatest movies of all time? Go. Yes. Do you? I feel like I need more time mm. to let it sink in, but I think that's likely. It will never be the movie I've watched most in my life. I can no. tell you that now. The movie I will probably watch most in my life is La La Land. 
It's getting up At there. the rate you're going? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you introduced me to the complete musical experience. So yes. I experienced that today. So good. I'm so glad. There you go. I ran. I was I just going to so ask, did you enjoy away. the version of 80s covers? My getaway. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> so I believe you're about to make... Kirk very happy. Hey, Kirk. Not only are we going to find 20 eggs within the hour, but we're going on to find 25, and then 30, and then 35, and then 40, and then 45, and then 50, until we find all 59 and take back the square. Yeah! Kirk, another Easter egg for you, bro. What, what? And it comes from this very episode, Christopher Returns, episode oh my goodness. 115. I was listening to the scene where Richard and Lorelai have their follow-up fight post the huge fight with the Haydens. Mm-hmm. And Richard says this. I had to tell my friends, my colleagues, that my only daughter, the brightest in her class was pregnant and was leaving school. That must have been devastating. And then you run away and you treat us as lepers. Your mother couldn't get out of bed for a month. Did you know that? Did you? No. Guess what that made me think of? It made me think of this moment in winter. I don't know how to do this. Do what? Live my life. No. I don't know what to do or where to go. I've forgotten which side of the bed to sleep on. And then... In the fall episode, when Lorelai gives that lovely, lovely speech to Emily. Mm-hmm. When she's on a mountain and telling the pretzel story, Emily's in bed answering the phone. And I like to think she's there because she's still grieving Richard. And that's where, like, she couldn't get out of bed. Mm. And so I think this is an established character trait when Emily is grieving. I think now that we've seen this happen... In a year in the life, I think we get a better picture of what it was like for her to lose her daughter. Hmm. Interesting. Just a little, maybe, maybe I'm in reading into that, but it made me think of those two moments. Yeah. No, that's interesting. How the bed, I don't know, it was like almost a, a source of comfort for her, but with Richard, mm-hmm. with the loss of Richard... It was also an area of grief for her because he wasn't there with her anymore. Mm -hmm. So she didn't know how to function in it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Good one. There you go. Not exactly a woohoo happy Easter egg. But it's going to make Kirk happy. Yeah. There you go, Kirk. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I love you. So, Taylor, (laughs) has our rosebud blossomed into a rose of understanding? I would say so. That's our show. Get out of here. What are you still doing here? We're like Ferris Bueller at the end of the movie. Go home. The podcast is over. (laughs) Um, Taylor, you've used that reference before at the end of the podcast. Have I? I didn't even notice because I just love Ferris Bueller and I think of that movie all the time. Did you put that on my movies to watch list? No, but I should. You should. Let me just watch the movies that are on the list, and then you can create a whole new one. (laughs) 
Well, hey, can I also mention another movie that we both loved that ties in with Citizen Kane? And ties Citizen Kane into current events. Okay. Mm, okay, thanks. I appreciate your permission. <laughs> because guess what? Somebody thinks Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is better than Citizen Kane. And that person is none other than our boy Pratt Pratt Pratt. Pratt Pratt Pratt! <laughs> I did what not did read this now? when it first happened, but this was probably, what, late April, early May? This is a post from the lovely Pratt 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 on his Facebook page. On May 5th, the greatest movie of the history of movies is coming. There has never been and will never again be a movie like this. Seriously. Ever heard of Citizen Kane? We're much better. Seriously. Oh my God. The movie just tested at over a million points. Rotten Tomatoes already has it at 234% fresh. It will win every movie award and about 39 Olympic gold medals in swimming, gymnastics, and skiing event with a gun and the X Games snowmobiling, snowmobiling and everything. It'll win the World Cup and seven Super Bowl rings. Sorry, Tom Brady. And he just goes on and on about how great it is and it will make candy fall from the sky. And frankly, that's something Citizen Kane never did. So he does have a point there. Mm-hmm. And if a movie can make candy fall from the sky and stop global warming and bring dinosaurs back to life, which, as somebody in Jurassic World, I think he would know how to do. Isn't that a movie we want in our lives? Just saying. Uh, hashtag our most beloved swashbuckler. Oh, yes, our most beloved swashbuckler. And also his super hilarious, awesome wife, Anna Ferris, liked our tweet. She did! Because hey, we tweeted about how funny she and Chris Pratt were, and she liked our tweet. So thanks, Anna Ferris. Um, also, you can listen to her podcast. Um, Anna Ferris is unqualified, and she interviewed Lauren Graham, and that was a fun episode. Um, <gasps> I haven't listened to that. I need to listen, listen to that. that. I tweeted it no. out. I think So It's I a Show tweeted it. it. Oh. Maybe not. I <laughs> did. Okay. Bad Twitter manager right yeah. now. <laughs> Shouldn't um, be giving so many people the password. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, listen to it. It it was a while ago. I listened to it on a drive down to Indianapolis. Why was I there? I don't know, but I was. And this has been our favorite segment. Kyla and Taylor talk about <laughs> recent podcasts, kind of, but not really. <laughs> it's rehash time woo oh yeah that's a good segment that was my um, michael jackson woo 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 oh that was good okay so citizen kane was a huge monster of epic proportions so we totally missed stuff guys but this podcast would have been this is gonna be a long one it would have been even <laughs> longer so here's what we had we would love to hear from you guys though because um, this was really interesting to read about, and I'd love to hear more. So if you have any great articles, tweet them at us. You can check out our Tumblr, So It's a Show, podcast.tumblr.com, and see the resources we have there to read a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Thank you for letting us talk about one of the greatest American movies of all time. And for letting us do it just in this short amount of time, because obviously we did not cover everything. 
Mm-hmm. So tell us what we missed. We want to hear your angry tweets. I mean, you don't have to be angry. You can be like, but then we could no, read guys. them on Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> and you could say, um, yo, how in the world could you not mention this? And you can tell us. And then we will know about it. Boom. Boom. There you go. So, tweeted us at So It's a Show. I'm on there at Kyla Kahnedu, K Y L A C A R N E I R O. And I'm at T Blake24. And collectively, we are all at So It's a Show. I am at So It's a Show. You are at So It's a Show. We're all at So It's a Show. It's the place to be, y'all. And you can email all of us at So It's a Show at gmail.com. And if you leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, it will definitely make you more part of it. And wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't it be nice if you were reviewing our podcast on iTunes? Because right now we're at five star, guys. And the more five stars, the more five stars. So... So Do the that. more, the more. The more, the more. I like it. All right, we need to get off this. That's our show, guys. <laughs> Come Go chat away. at us. Thanks for listening. Rosebud. And here's what we're going to talk about next time. <clears throat> oh, God. <laughs> Mom has gone a little crazy with the figurines here, huh? Little Kathy Bates. Although you probably haven't seen Misery, which is a good thing. Because Rory couldn't sleep alone for a week after we watched it. That wouldn't be a problem for you, because you don't sleep alone anyway. I'm guessing. I don't know what your and mom's sleeping arrangement is. Now I'm wishing I hadn't brought it up, because it's such a wow, don't want to go there kind of a subject for me. Not for you, because you should definitely go there if you, uh, well, anyway. Ah! Oh, what have you done now?